Good morning again. My name is Haley, and our scripture reading today is from Mark 2, starting in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. No, that's Haley. Thank you, Haley. Thank you, Sean. Apparently, I, uh, they were giving me a hard time that I missed one week. At least it's good to be n noticed that when I'm not here. <laughs> Thank you. It's good to see you all. How's everybody? Good. How, who's doing awful? Anyone? People are like, wait, what? what this? That's what we always say. I'm doing good. I just wanted to give space in case you're not. Uh, let's just pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for these words that your, your son gave, and they may be so familiar to some, and to some they may be like, what is this going to be about? I just pray that it's about you and about your love and your truth. God, thank you for gathering us together as your church, Father. We love you. In your name, amen. It was uh, encouraging for me. I got to uh, connect last week with a, a church I used to work at in San Francisco. Um, and that's always a blessing to worship God in the heart of San Francisco. It is a church that loves Jesus, that is growing um, that, that is gospel-centered, and so if you're ever wondering, sometimes people avoid San Francisco, they're like, oh, that's just that, like there's good things happening there as well, so that was good. At least they didn't throw things at me or anything, so I was able to leave there. Um, we've been looking through the book of Mark, and the real challenge around the book of Mark and why we've been going so slow is also like we really need to pay attention to what Jesus really said and what Jesus really did. Because a lot of us will uh, communicate on his behalf at times. We'll say like, well, this is what Jesus kind of probably meant, right? Or, or we kind of like lose some of his phrasing and we lose some of his words and it just turns into best practices. And it's really important to dive in to what he really said. And we're in a section of Mark where there seems to be quite a few questions I don't know how you are with questions. Some of you may love to ask questions. Some of you may not. Some of you may hate when you're asked questions. You know, like there's like a press conference and you're kind of called out on things that you're doing or saying. Some of us would avoid that like the plague. But there's this journey through the second chapter of Mark where we see some of these questions starting to pop up to Jesus. Things like, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Another question that comes up is, why is he eating and drinking with tax gatherers and sinners? 
Today's question, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Moving forward, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, in ancient Jewish dialogue, there would be a lot of questions going back and forth. In fact, this is sometimes how they communicated. Things like this, for example, the religious leader said, why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus immediately knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk? A question responded by a question. In fact, there's some uh, studies that people have looked at. How many questions did Jesus actually answer? It's very few, unless you count a question as an answer. Man, I was, wish I was more like Jesus. Dale, have you cleaned up your clothes? Do you think I have cleaned up my clothes? <laughs> Went to the dentist one time when I was younger, and they're like, how often do you floss? I'm like, how often do you think I floss? They're like, three times a week. Let's go with that. In today's scripture, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, be yours or not? Jesus, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? There is an art to Jesus' communication. While questions in our lives and questions to Jesus was often to trap him or to limit him, his questions back to them was pulling them to a bigger mindset of the kingdom. Don't just pull me into what you want to hear. Let me pull you into what you need to know. And that therein is the rub so often. Jesus, you tell me this. And Jesus is like, let me show you this. No, what's the view on this? And Jesus is like, this is the life you need to be living. Jesus' intent was freedom. Their questions was around confinement. You see, there's a paradox of what Jesus is inviting them into because there's this bigger idea that when you, when you fully submit to God or you clearly follow him, it's actually larger. But they were getting stuck. And what about this issue? What is your stance on this very thing? Because when Jesus came, if you're looking at it, he didn't came to just indoctrinate us. He didn't come to just give us a doctrinal statement or just a limited view or opinion. He didn't come to do those things. He came to liberate us. He came to encourage us, to ask us what we think about God so that we would be aware of our own heart. And then he presented parables and stories to get us to stop and to actually think, to question our own perception of God, to draw us into questioning what our own beliefs about God's nature and plans are, and then clearly follow him and submit to him. If Jesus was here today, he wouldn't come in to set things straight with straightforward answers. He would say, what are you thinking about God? And I think because when we become aware of what our own thoughts are, and if we're actually teachable and open, he might show us a bigger and broader thing than we've ever seen before. But these ideas of questions, sometimes, there's, sometimes we can be afraid of asking questions because it hasn't gone well, 
right? You ask a question and someone mocks that question. Like, what are you even thinking? Sometimes we're newer to faith and you're involved like in a small group discussion and everybody seems to know more than you do. So you kind of hold back to what you're really thinking. Your question might be like, I don't even know what's going on right now. So we pretend and we just kind of get through the evening. Sometimes our questions might reveal something deeper in our hearts where we don't understand something or maybe something's happening in our family that's a deeper struggle. But if we actually let people know this, what will they think of us? You see, questions can be incredibly powerful, but they can also be incredibly revealing. I think that's why Jesus answered in questions so many times because he's like, you want to know something about me, I want to know something about you. Author Mick Mooney writes this, questions in faith are not opposed to one another, but rather can be thought of as a perfect pair. We could even say that faith is more accurately measured by the courage within our questions than the certainty of our answers. You see, answers fit snugly within its given group, any group, Groups love definitive answers, for it reinforces the certainty that their group is right and the rest are wrong. Questions, on the other hand, cause instability in all groups. Questions can stimulate honest thought. Questions like, I wonder if, I wonder how. I remember being a young man asking questions. My questions weren't always invited. <laughs> sometimes they weren't really appropriate, but sometimes I'd be in an environment of youth group and I'm like, what about this? And the response back taught me that in certain faith circles, you don't ask questions, which is really a travesty because faith can contain all of our questions. And what we will see here today, it's actually old thoughts that can't handle our questions. Jesus calls them old wineskins, cannot handle new things. Jesus isn't avoiding questions. He's actually challenging your question isn't big enough. Go deeper. Go further. Go broader. But since John's disciples were mentioned at the very beginning of what Haley read today, I'm going to dive in a little bit into John. John the Baptist, if you will. Now, to be honest with you, I got deep into a rabbit hole around John the Baptist, but I pulled myself out. So we're going to go like halfway into a rabbit hole. Like on Tuesday when I study, I was deep into like the loneliness and depression of John the Baptist. It was like a dark place. And then I got a phone call and I'm like, oh, thank God someone pulled me out of this dark hole of John the Baptist. I mean, honestly, this is just Dale being real because I don't know how to be anything else. So remember, John the Baptist had been put in prison. We looked at this in the first chapter. This is how Mark is. He just kind of throws it in there. He said, after John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. We have been introduced to John the Baptist as, as the guy who was like preaching and people were coming out to him. And he dressed funny. He was dressed in this wild camel hair with a belt, didn't shave, didn't cut his hair. Wait, Daryl, are you John the Baptist here this morning, brother? No? That, there's my example right there, my buddy Darrow, who I love tremendously. But all of a sudden, he baptizes Jesus and it throws randomly in there, and then he was thrown into prison. You're like, wait, what happened to this guy? 
There's an ongoing storyline with John the Baptist. And later in Mark 6, we're told why he was thrown in to prison. You see, Herod had imprisoned him because John the Baptist called Herod out. Herod had publicly uh, put away, he divorced his first wife and then took his brother's wife away from him. And John's like, that ain't right. So Herod throws him into prison. So while John's in prison, he was just kind of hearing random things about what Jesus was doing. He was getting bits and pieces. Now, when we're disconnected and we're only hearing bits and pieces of truth, we start to fill in our own gaps, don't we? Partial information from his disciples was coming back to him. I heard this, or he is saying this. We do this all the time. We fill in partial information through text messages, online posts, conversations where you're not really hearing each other. And it's so dangerous when we assume certain things. I mean, we fill in the gaps all the time with tone and with what we think is meant. It's amazing what we can read and hear in somebody's just written word. And no doubt that John the Baptist, as he's sitting by himself in prison, who Jesus called one of the greatest prophets, is sitting there having to fill in the information and filling in the gaps. And he's wondering, so he would send his disciples to Jesus and say, can you get some more information about this? John was also no doubt filling things in on his own. You know, I've discovered that whenever you're looking for, whatever your concerns are, you can find the answer. Meaning you can go on a Google search and like, what is wrong with this? And you can see a whole list of things. What is this view, or how do I fight this? Versus saying, what is really God saying? In this world and society, we can find things to support what we already think. Maybe the information that was getting back to John was a bit tainted because of how his disciples saw it, how they interpreted it. Maybe they were a bit jealous. Wait, we were the disciples of you, John. Like we had this thing going, we had this movement and now these people are following Jesus and they're doing things different than we would have done it. So John would send his disciples directly to Jesus to ask specific questions. So even though in John's loneliness and John's isolation, being in prison, even though John was pushed aside and he filled in the gaps, there was this point where he said, in order to know the truth, we must go to the truth. Enough of my own Google searches from prison. Let's learn what, how he pursued the truth. If we look at another gospel in Matthew 11, he references this point. Now when John, while in prison, heard the works of Christ, he sent word to his disciples, by his disciples, and said to him, are you the expected one, or should we be looking for somebody else? I mean, that's where it got. I mean, John baptized Jesus as the chosen one. Because even though he had that powerful moment, he had enough time away that even he questioned. Have you had that powerful moment where you're like, there is no way I'm turning away anymore? Like, I've seen it, it's clear, it's powerful, it's my mountaintop experience. I met God, I met God He spoke to me, but then life kind of goes on, and even that person who was so close 
can drift. Even though John the Baptist, who was known as the greatest prophet by Jesus, is known as a man who was powerful, drifted because he was disconnected. You can see how much confusing it must have been for him that he got to a point where he doubted whether Jesus was actually the Son of God a little bit. The issues of the day or the concerns become bigger when Jesus is just one of the things we follow. I mean, let's be honest. This is my full honesty with you. I drift when Jesus gets moved from the king to one of the things I consider. But you're like, you're our pastor. How can he just become one of the things I consider? Because things fight for my attention. Things fight for my heart. Things fight for my conviction. Issues of the day become elevated to the same point of what it means to follow Jesus. Follow Jesus plus X, Y, and Z. And when Jesus simply becomes one of the things that we follow, even if we saw the Holy Spirit descend upon him like John did, we can get to the point where we're like, wait, wait, are, are you really the one? And then Jesus answered back to the disciples in an answer that reflects the words of the prophet Isaiah. Jesus says, Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. Man, that is so, what do you hear? What do you see? What have I said? What have I done? The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. You see, we can learn something unique about Jesus, even in this moment, and I haven't really even gotten into the verses yet. I'm just talking about John. How did John's, what was Jesus' answer to this question of doubt? Jesus did not say, go back and tell John to get over himself. Jesus did not tell the disciples, go back to John and say these positive words in the mirror. I'm good enough. I'm strong enough. God loves me. He says, no, go back and tell them what has happened. There is a power in story. There is an importance of the clarity of the messenger as well. Here is what's so important. John's disciples had a mission as well, and their mission was, how do we clearly communicate to John what he said? There is an importance of the messenger of that who knows Jesus to what they're telling other people about Jesus. Do we get that? We confuse, I confuse so many things along the way. We're like, this is who Jesus actually said he was. Now I'm going to add a little bit of what I think to leverage and a few of my thoughts and opinions, and this is the end result. It's like pouring water into a coffee filter, and you hope to have the best coffee in it, and the end result should be a beautiful cup of coffee. But then we add a few elements in it. You're like, oh, I like a little spice. I like a little dirt. I like a little whatever. The end result is not a beautiful cup of coffee. It's whatever's in that filter. And it's so important as Jesus goes, tell John this, that in order for John to sit in his isolation and to sit in his prison and to actually be reassured that Jesus is the son of God, the disciples of John had to bring back the clarity of that message to him. 
We need to, and I don't know who's doing this, so I hate it when I'm like, you need to do this. We need to, I need to handle the clear message of who Jesus is to this world, to people. Not infiltrated with my thoughts, my ideas, my leverage. But this is what Jesus actually said. Can you imagine if the disciples making their way back to John, sitting in prison, were like, we're going to add a little spice to this just to make sure. John would have missed it. John would have sat isolated, about to be killed, not knowing that Jesus was the Messiah. But I have to believe his disciples went back and said, this is what he said. And John's like, just as the prophet said. And even in his isolation in prison, even though his death was imminent, even though Herod was about to kill him, John could go, I have seen the Son of God. Why? Because the clarity of the messengers who told him the truth. Item by item, recounts for John all the evidence of the goodness of God that is evident in his ministry. You see, Jesus is always pointing us to that which is real, that which is true, that which is right. Our part, if we have it, is to not confuse people about Jesus. They're going to be confounded with how amazing he is. But we shouldn't get in the way and confuse them on who he is. So back into today's verses for a few minutes. So when he is being asked about fasting, he knows that this information is also going to get back to John. So he wants to be really clear. The Gospel of Matthew gives a little more clarity, potentially, on who was actually asking Jesus this question. Matthew writes it, Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? So there's a question around fasting, so let me just talk about this for a moment. This isn't fasting like we would know it, where we might abstain from food. Intermittent fasting is quite popular these days as a weight loss kind of option. This isn't just about that. In the law, there was a rhythm that they believed they should fast once a week. They would double that. They're like, we want to really make sure we're following the law. So they would do it a couple of times a week. Commentator William Barclay writes about it like this. The fast is a powerful thing. When we're not depending on the substance of food, we are drawn to the dependence of God. The trouble about the Pharisees was that in far too many cases, their fasting was for a self-display. It was to call the attention of men to their goodness. They actually whitened their faces and went about with disheveled garments on their fast days so that no one could miss the fact that they were fasting and so that everyone would see and admire their devotion. It was to call the attention of God to their piety. So they would do this twice a week. They would look miserable, right? I know some Christians like this. They look miserable for Jesus. Okay, that's funny to me. Not really. It's actually tragedy. I probably shouldn't have made a joke. Where they're walking around like, I love God so much. 
And that's kind of what they would do. They would put this on this show and say, I am suffering for God. That's all that John knew as well. Like John's like, this is part of your devotion back to God. Now this might be really confusing. Why are these religious people that we're looking at doing this thing, but the people who are so close to Jesus not doing this thing? What is really happening here? Jesus answers in this amazing parable. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. Now you might be going, what kind of answer is that? Why didn't he just answer what the question was? Here we go. He answers in a parable. Now, weddings back in those times were not just you show up for a couple of hours, you see the ceremony, you have a reception, you eat free food, maybe you get free drink, and then you leave. Weddings at that time were a many-day affair. Think back to the original uh, miracle that Jesus did, right? It was a wedding that was a many-day affair. They ran out of wine. It was an embarrassment. Jesus takes the water, turns it into wine. The party continues. Now, having my daughter who's getting married in a few, six weeks or so, the expense of that sounds horrifying <laughs> because my brothers will just eat and eat and eat and eat and the buffet will run out and... Though my daughter wants every song to be Taylor Swift at the dance party, there's only so much Taylor Swift. But every time she's in the car, she plays Taylor Swift, so maybe there's an unending amount of Taylor Swift. I don't know. <laughs> but that's what they would do. They would party and party and party and party. So Jesus' response to them is, if the bridegroom is here with you, if you're at a wedding... I mean, how bad would it be if you're like, you're at the reception, you're super hungry. You're like, oh, this is going to be a great reception. And they show up and they're like, hey, surprise, it's a fast reception. There's no food, but God is really going to be honored during this time. So we're going to look at each other and just not eat. How long would you stay? At, you're like, oh man, I got to go. Like the babysitter stopping at McDonald's on the way home whatever it might be. But Jesus steps into this and he's actually calling himself the bridegroom. He's calling himself God once again. Like, how is that God? He's stepping in a prophetic. He's saying, as long as I am here with them, there should be a joy. There was actually a rabbinic law, which means a rabbi professed this law that it was okay to take a break from fasting. There was a ruling that said all in attendance to a wedding feast by the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances which would lessen their joy. So he's saying like, if you feel like you need to be religious and if it lessens your joy during this wedding, you don't have to do it. Now, once again, my family would take that to full advantage. The, weddings were at, the wedding guests were actually exempt from all fasting. So what Jesus is saying, there is a joy, there is a feast in following me. This should show up in my followers, a feast, a family. He's also stepping into his deity once again. He says, I am the groom, the church is my bride. This is the conclusion of the love story that may have first been brought up to Abraham when God says, I am your shield, I am your great reward. 
And throughout the Old Testament, we keep seeing this pointing to Jesus, and Jesus steps in and goes, I am the one who's going to fulfill all that you have. So while I am here, why would we fast? We would party. We would be together. This is more than a parable. It's a declaration of something to be embraced, to be experienced. What part of the wedding feast are you communicating well to other people? When people come and encounter us, are they experiencing someone who is feasting with the bridegroom? Or are they encountering someone who's kind of changing the storyline? You see, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says this, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband, to Christ, so that I may present you as pure to him. There is this very strong wedding prophetic communication that Christ has come to fulfill and to partner with us, to love us, to protect us. We all know what an unfaithful bride looks like, whether it's from something you've experienced in your own life to what you've seen on movies and TV, we know what the unfaithfulness feels like. And Jesus is saying, I have come so that you may know have life. I have come so that you will experience what faithfulness looks like. Faithfulness, when you are confident that that which you've given your heart to was 100% faithful back, there's a joy. There's a contentment. There's a peace. You should be able to breathe. Even in the midst of disagreement, you know this isn't going to go awry because you know faithfulness locks you in. Jesus is saying, I am that faithful one to you. And when you don't have faith, I have enough for both of us. I am with you. I will fulfill you. But then Jesus pulls us to something even bigger. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins. And both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. There is so much here. Let me see if I can pull some stuff together for you. Because we're unfamiliar, most of us, some of you may have studied this before, with ancient practices, sometimes it's kind of hard for us in modern to, to kind of grab what Jesus is really saying here. You see, in Jesus' day, at this day, they actually used animal skins for storing their liquids. They would create containers out of that. And then fermented drinks, which wine was that it took a fermentation, it would expand and since old wide skins would already be stretched to its limit, you wouldn't put new wine in it because it would also stretch it as it fermented and suddenly it would burst. And even though you might be saving a little bit of money because you had this old wine skin and you're pouring new things in, you're like, I'm cutting the corners, it's good enough, that would instantly burst. And after a while, you'd be like, that's a foolish thing. To Jew. So when Jesus' answer, he's like, just as people wouldn't do this, I am not 
the old wineskin. I think about it like this. If you have kids, you are well aware that your kids change. Yesterday, my wife and I were at our next door neighbor, and they have an eight-month-old. Cute little girl, funny, looks, she just stares at me like she can see into my soul. And Lisa's like, she's staring at you. I'm like, I know, I'm kind of feeling like guilty for all the things I've done in my life. And I'm like, look away, and she's just like staring at me. And I'm like, how did she know? But there's certain things you do with a toddler, right? Like they're standing up, they're falling down, they're like put, trying to put their head through the railing. You're like, no, you don't want to do that. It's, it's like in that stage where it's trying to climb on people. And also appropriately, they're guiding it and watching. It's also beautiful. It's not my kid. I'm like, you do what? I didn't have to do anything. It was great. Except like feel guilty for my soul that she was staring into. Now, pretend you did that with your teenager. Oh, don't stand there. Watch out. Be careful. I mean, some of us do that. But our kids change. They grow. And if we continue to treat them exactly the same, we're missing out on something. We're not actually engaging with them the way we need to. You see, you need the expandability as a parent or uncle or guardian with your children. You don't keep them in this little box. And if you do, they will let you know that that's exactly what you are doing. I mean, they still need something that holds them because that's what they want. They want to see. And sometimes they come home from college and behave like they still want. That's my own little therapy right now. Like, Dad, I need this. And I'm like, but you're 23. And she's like, no, make me dinner. And I'm like, do the dishes. And she's like, whatever. That's sorry. Let's go on there. It reminds me of this, this story. Um, when Anna was really little, my daughter, she was like two or three, she wanted to, uh, I don't know if she wanted to, we saw a commercial for Sesame Street Live, you know those amazing shows that just like, they just take your money, you know, so we're like, she loves Sesame Street, she loved Elmo, so we're like, sure, we'll take you to Sesame Street Live, so we bought tickets, it was at the San Jose Arena, and so um, us being us, we went to park and we didn't turn left to pay for parking. We turned right like a few blocks down and parked in this garage where it was free. The downside is you have to walk like 15 minutes to get to the arena. But we were young and strong, so who cares? So we were walking on the way to the arena. She's like three years old and there was a man making balloons. Not making balloons, but making balloon animals. Really all he knew how to make was a sword which is like one twist, and he's like, it's a sword. And so my three-year-old daughter's like, this is amazing. It's a balloon, man. I want to stay with the balloon, man. We're like, no, we're going to Sesame Street Live. And she's like, I want the balloon, man. I'm like, why did we buy tickets? We could have parked for free and gone to the balloon, man. We walked about three more minutes, four more minutes, and there was two police officers sitting on horses. She thought this was the event. She's like, oh my gosh, there's horses and policemen. And so she's patting them on the whatever she's doing, you know. And I'm like, okay, we have to get to Sesame Street Live. We paid for this. And she's like, no, I don't want to leave the horses. So my daughter's kicking and screaming and crying because I'm forcing her to go see Sesame Street Live. She doesn't get it. She's seeing all the things along the way when there's something greater out there. I mean, greater, let's be honest, okay. 
I think we get even closer and there's somebody selling like illegal t-shirts, like for Sesame Street Live. Like, that's awful. But this guy was making money. And she's like, I want a t-shirt. We're like, no, forget it. There's plenty of junk inside. You know, finally, we get her in there and it was like an amazing night, whatever. Oh, but each thing that she saw along the way, she thought saw as the most important thing. I was thinking about this. What if she bought a ticket for Taylor Swift and she's 23 years old? And she comes home and I'm like, hey, how was Taylor Swift? She goes, I don't know. I ran into the balloon guy. <laughs> and then there was these horses. I never actually made it in to see Taylor Swift. I'd be like, you made a good choice. But maturity tells us, no, that she sees those things for what they are. She's there and she's going to go do what she came to do. Because as they expand and grow and understand, they make those better choices. Jesus is saying, as I pour new things into you, if you keep settling for the balloon guy, if you keep stopping for the two policemen on the horses longer than actually getting to me, you're just pouring old things into an old life. I have something brand new for you, but if you keep getting hung up on the events along the way versus getting to where I want you to be, you're not growing with me. You see, Jesus was making a very specific point to people and to John the Baptist because the doubts will creep into our lives and they might start in isolation, but isolation isn't just us being by ourselves. Isolation can also happen in couples. Isolation can happen in groups. It's whenever you're disconnected from a life source. When you're disconnected from the truth, when you're disconnected from something clear, anytime that we expect the things of God to look familiar or to look like they always have, we'll miss the new things that God has for you. What does God have for you? Have you asked him lately? Is there something new you have for me today? Is there something I need to see differently today? Is there something I've been hanging on to? See, when we drift from submitting to God and following the way of Jesus, we're just left patching together old things. There's a difference between having this saving relationship with Jesus? There is. I mean, that's that point of salvation, which is amazing. But there's a difference between that and actually continuing to grow and follow and submit and be who he's called us to be. You see, we cannot alter Jesus to fit our mold of religion or preferences or the appearance of success. As the ancient prophet Isaiah wrote to us, and we need to remember this so deeply, yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. What's he making? If you're the clay and God's the potter, what's he making? There's something kind of cool, though, that God's kind of like, do you want to be made into something? But he will shape us. I think this really only happens by submission to him. And we try to fit Jesus' teachings of love and freedom and truth 
in any pharisaical legalism or even its modern-day equivalents of legalism would have resulted in the bursting and the pieces of love and freedom and truth are just spilt all over the floor. I know in my life there's times I feel like God freshes something new in me, but it's not coming into a new container. It's just kind of coming into my old container, and it just comes in, and it's there, and it goes all over the place. No matter how old you are, we still need to say, God, make me a new place. Make me a new wineskin. Make me a new container. How do I hold this? Some final few thoughts as we conclude this. I know in today's society, these words of submitting feel super like, Ugh, I, don't, I don't like that. It kind of feels counter, to be honest, of 2022. Because we've been existing in a culture of individualism and self-promotion for a while, and that feels way better. But individualism isn't a brand new thought. I mean, the very, very, very first temptation in the garden, the devil looks at Eve and goes, don't you want to be an individual? Don't you want to be different? I mean, he says to her, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat from it, from this tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. He's saying to her in the very beginning, you will be in individually as great as God. No submission needed. So for us to think that this thing of individualism is like a progressive new thought for us, like this is who we are now, that's a lie. Because the very first temptation at the very beginning was separate, don't submit, you will be equal with God. So what's actually new? Submitting and following God. Allow him to give us the freedom that comes from him. As Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and I want you just to let this come into you, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. What Jesus is saying Go back and tell John, the new is here. And you're like, wait, that was 2,000 years ago. But the newness of Jesus just keeps remaining new. It keeps renewing. All things are made new. Your mercies are new every morning. The active presence of God in our lives brings freshness and newness every single day. And when faith and religion feels old, we have drifted from the source. Go back to hear the purity of who Jesus is because it is new, it is fresh, and it is life-giving. Join with me in a few moments as we just sit before God. Prior to us entering our time, what we just call ministry time, where we worship together, we take communion, we're available for prayer. If you're new with us this morning, this is the time we just pause and we sit still. and We listen to maybe what God has for us today. 
what God has for you. This is your moment with him. Encourage you to to slow your thoughts for a moment. Helps me to listen to myself breathe just for a moment. Maybe you found yourself to be a bit like John the Baptist in some kind of isolation, disconnected from the things of Jesus. Even like I go to church, but you still feel like a bit disconnected. If you were John the Baptist, if this is you, what would you want to ask Jesus? What do you want to ask Jesus today? Just ask him. for his response. Are you open for some new wine to be poured into your life? Ask God, am I ready? Make me ready. Maybe ask God what new thing he wants to do in your life. What new wine does he want to pour into you? What new freshness? What is he saying? This is what I want to do. It could be this is what I want you to let go of. To be dead honest in front of you, my friends, and I, the thing that God is saying to me is, Sometimes I allow myself to feel like I'm alone, that everything is up to me. And God just wants me to say it's not true. What is he saying to you? So Father, I pray for us as a church family that we would step into this week anticipating new things your word your truth God may we be a new vessel filled with what you have for us may we let go of the things that are so easily entangling us and may we pursue you really really well this week by just letting you reside in us we love you in your name Amen. Let me just read this reminder to you as we leave. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear ever again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Praise the Lord. Be blessed this week. If you're new or we haven't connected yet, I'd love to connect with you back in our connection gathering. If not, have a great week. Be a blessing to one another and to those around you. Bye.